Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. This week, the Department of Energy announced a major breakthrough in the decades-long quest to recreate on Earth the process that powers the sun. Nuclear fusion. To simplify slightly, scientists at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California recently fired a bunch of lasers at a piece of hydrogen. The lasers used 2.05 megajoules of energy to hit the hydrogen, but the resulting reaction produced three megajoules of energy. I'm no physicist, but even I know that sounds like a big deal. I'm Ryan Lizza. This is Playbook Deep Dive. For the first time in the history of fusion research, scientists achieved ignition. More energy was produced by the reaction than was used to create it. If you've seen any of the coverage, you know this was a thrilling moment for scientists. But here in Washington and the world of politics, there was no elected official who was as excited about these results as Representative Don Beyer. Beyer is a former lieutenant governor of Virginia and an ambassador in the Obama administration. His background is not in physics, it's in cars. If you've lived in the Beltway for a while, you've probably seen one of his family's dealerships. They're everywhere. But a few years ago, Bayer became consumed with the promise of fusion, how it could become a cheap and plentiful alternative to fossil fuels, how it could solve the climate crisis, how it could alleviate world poverty. Bayer became one of those people you sometimes meet who are so obsessed with an idea that it's all they talk about. He used his seat on the House Science Committee to evangelize for fusion research funding. He wrote about the issue in Scientific American. He founded a bipartisan fusion caucus in Congress. It now has dozens of members. He used his limited FaceTime with Joe Biden and top White House aides to talk about the civilization-changing potential of merging two hydrogen nuclei. He admits that sometimes people looked at him like he was a little crazy. There's a long history of people becoming intoxicated with fusion's potential, but then becoming disappointed by the glacial pace of fusion science. It's one of those technologies that's allegedly been a decade away for about six decades now. But after this week's news, Bayer doesn't sound so outlandish. I went up to the Hill to talk fusion policy and politics with the congressman and find out if the breakthrough out of California is really that big a deal or whether this will once again lead to the same dashed expectations that has long characterized the history of fusion research. So I am not a physicist, I'm not a scientist, I'm a humble car dealer who got elected to Congress. So, but I have to be the evangelist. And so um, for eight months, I was the first, the only member of Congress on Pete's campaign, right? So every time I would see Mayor Pete, I'd talk about fusion. And my wife is all in what did, Biden's campaign. What, so what I, see, Buttigieg, I could see Buttigieg being very skeptical. Yeah, yeah, but but he's smart. I mean, so, you know, he'll listen. And, yeah, well, and he's also nerdy, there. so, I, yeah, he's yeah, enthusiastic yeah. about stuff like that. And um, we did a party for Joe Biden at our house, so I talked to a candidate Biden about it. And 
And every time I see Steve Rashetti, I talk about fusion. And, you know, just what, what's Rashetti's reaction? <laughs> well, he's always polite. <laughs> Um, you know, but somehow, you know, and as and not, not just me, but then there's a whole community out there. I'm, I'm just one small voice. For listeners that um, are not savvy on on the science, explain what this breakthrough was in the um, progression towards making fusion plants a reality. Explain what the breakthrough um, was this week. Or it was reported this week. I guess it happened earlier in December. So, so the the quick background yeah. is that, in fact, you'll appreciate that when I was talking to these MIT scientists, the first thing they told me was, "Don't don't ever say the word nuclear fusion." That phrase, Why because not? nuclear, in most people's oh, minds, right. it's Fukushima, Chernobyl, through my life. Right. And of course, even though first- it is technically nuclear fusion. As opposed the, to fission. Exactly. And, and the word they, nuclear they has, almost sound the same. You know, right. they're, they're almost spelled the same. But fission is breaking apart the huge molecule. And that gives you radioactivity and explosions and Chernobyl. And fusion is the exact opposite. It's taking two hydrogen nuclei and banging them together to form a helium atom. No byproduct. No. The only, well, no, excuse me, at, no. at the, yeah. Okay. At, that, at that level, the only byproduct is a neutron. Um, which doesn't hurt anything, but what the neutron does is it heats up something and you get um, the same kind of heat that runs a power plant, whether you're burning coal or oil or, or anything else. So what the, and of course, you, we've been able to do that in really small measures, create fusion things for a long time, but it's always ca- taken so much more energy in and very little energy out. So yeah. getting to that, they call it the Q ratio, the Q factor. Um, you want a Q of at least one, so you're getting as much out as you put in. And in a perfect world, you want many times out, a Q of 10 or, 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 or more. So the, the breakthrough that happened at Livermore Laboratory is they put in one, and they got 1.5, 1.6 out. So not quite double, but uh, very much to show that it is possible. And it's possible to do it in a laboratory. So the engineering equation is that... Uh, you have to get the plasma, which is your hydrogen gas heated up, becomes hydrogen plasma, where the electrons have separated from the, the nuclei themselves. So the protons and neutrons are, are whirring around and the electrons are whirring around, but they're not together anymore as atoms. Got it. And you have to heat it to 100 million degrees centigrade. So very, hotter than anything has ever been on this planet. And when that happens, um, they, they will bang together, fuse, and throw off this neutron. And, uh, and so it's very exciting. The, and we've the, known this is theoretically Since the po- early possible. 1930s. Yeah. In fact, um, you know, we, yeah, helium is the number two element. We didn't even discover it till the 1930s. Because huh. how, how do you discover helium, <laughs> right? Um, and you realize that when you put hydrogen atoms together, what you get is helium. And it makes your voice all funny. <laughs> uh, so a lot, of, a lot of helium spun off of the moon, or of the sun, rather. Wait, this, helium itself was not invented as a yeah, until, not even discovered. Yeah. So children's birthday parties are totally different. No. And who knew? One of the things <laughs> I learned I got here is we actually have a national helium reserve, which we can fill up pretty quickly once we get these um, fusion factories going. So now the next challenge, now that we know and this it's is, this real. this is known as ignition. That's ignition. There are a variety of ways. In fact, one of the fun parts for us as citizens is that there are 27 startup companies in America trying to do fusion energy, and the, the federal labs like Lawrence Livermore, there are almost 27 different ideas about how to get there. Got it. So the, yeah. this was what we've all been excited about this week is 
using lasers? Using lasers, yeah. They have a bunch of lasers focused on the very same point that gets it to 100 million degrees centigrade. And and there's the hydrogen there, and boom, it, it, it fused and created helium and threw off a lot of energy. What's the most exciting implication? Is it simply breaking this this uh, barrier that's been theoretical up until now of producing more energy than you put in? Or are there implications for the specific kind of prototype plants that we you know hope to develop one day? I'm, I'm not a enough of an engineer to know about that. I do know that the, the, the number one great implication is, look, we did it. It's real. It's not a pipe dream. It's not uh, always going to be 25 years away. Uh, the second thing is, I'm hoping that it will also um, free up the public investment in this. They've done what they've done almost all with private money. Uh, we have a lot of money authorized yeah. in the federal Congress, but right now the actual appropriation is $25 million. Million? Million. That's yeah, it? With an M, yeah. Which is really, really small when you consider yeah, that's what, what happens. Um, and in the meantime, we're trying to avoid the Solyndra syndrome. We, we don't want to just invest in companies. The, the National Academy of Sciences put out uh, a paper a couple of years ago. Here are the steps you have to get to have fusion energy on the grid, and they were engineering milestones. So we take a milestone approach to say, here's a million dollars if you hit this engineering milestone, here's half a million if you hit this engineering one. So just last week, we discovered when we put this out, the first 25 million, we had uh, about 87 million worth of projects offered right away that they said, here, uh, this is what we're going to work on to qualify. So more money will just make it go faster. One of the reports from the Department of Energy that I that I, I, I saw, I think it was linked in your Scientific American article, said that the U.S. goal was to have a prototype plant by the 2040s. Is that plan still um, relevant, or is what Granholm and the administration working on what they're working on now is it more ambitious th- than that? And will this change the the timeline for getting a plant up and a prototype plant? Yeah, so so the, the most pessimistic out there is the ETER project, which is the big international project, includes Russia and China and Marseille, France. We're a big investor in it. In fact, we've been putting like a billion dollars a year of American taxpayer money in that. And they expect to have the prototype ready by 2045. I think if you go back a year, my guess is the Department of Energy would think more like 2040. Um, the... Fusion Industry Association says 20, 2035 on the grid. But if you start to talk to the entrepreneurs, they're all saying 2030, 2031. Uh, again, back And that's back before to, this breakthrough. That was, yeah, and that's before the breakthrough. Yeah, that's as two months ago, three months ago. Um, everyone's trying to go as fast as possible. And it's uh, the, the slang approach to the federal government investment is that we've spent just enough money on it to make sure it never happens. <laughs> You know, oh, that's to, the, on fusion specifically. Yeah, or in yeah, general? Yeah. yeah, on fusion specifically. Yeah, yeah. You know, enough to say uh, that you're doing you on it. the head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but and but we look and say, you know, uh, we got mRNA vaccines in two months. It took a year to get them in arms. The Manhattan Project was under two years. There's all kinds of things that we can do if we focus on them and really pay attention to them. And God bless Joe Biden and Jennifer Granholm and. Because they have a number two, they have a deputy secretary of energy now who's, who owns Fusion. Oh, interesting. Uh, I think uh, Jerry Richmond. Okay. And a number two at OSTP who has a Fusion mandate. 
Uh, they hired a fusion plasma physicist, a guy named Scott Chu, at DOE just to over, oversee their fusion initiative. And so there's a lot more attention uh, in the last two years than there's ever been before. You know, there are folks in D.C. who lobby for kind of like worthy but fringe causes, like <laughs> like like the metric folks yeah. and the uh, the daylight savings time folks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I thought about running for president on the daylights on the <laughs> metric thing. Well, no, somebody tried that. But did it seem like um, did it seem like you were making progress over the the last couple of years of the Biden administration? Uh, yes, it did, and. Oh, very much so. Even in the last couple of years of the Trump administration, I mean, not necessarily with the Trump people, yeah, um, but with you know other people just in the community. First of all, it's easy to be excited about because if we can make it real, yeah. if we overcome not, not just overcome the skepticism, but overcome the the reality that we haven't done it yet, um, then it, it addresses climate change in the most powerful way. Yeah, you know, because you really could replace almost all fossil fuel. I mean, sure, you might need fossil fuel for aircraft and things like that, but but as the bread and butter for our energy system, it completely goes away. And then um, I have a friend, Larry Linden, who has the Linden Foundation in New York, and his whole thing is direct air capture. Direct Let's take the carbon out of the air with this carbon we've been dumping in for the last 200 years. But the dilemma is it takes more carbon to take it out than you get out. So that yeah. th that's a net negative. Uh, but there yeah. are, in Iceland and British Columbia and Switzerland, there are very successful direct air capture programs. Yeah. Uh, and if, boy, if you can do a non-carbon source like um, fusion, um, you could dramatically change the climate change picture um, in the years to come. As someone who's been thinking about this very seriously for a few years now and has talked to, I'm sure, all the leading experts in the United States about this, is there some dark side? Is there some downside? The Because at the dawn of every great technological revolution, uh, mostly what you hear is the optimism. The right, dawn of the right, nuclear right, age. Right. We all, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. dawn of the age of the internet. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I, the, the, like, the internet's yeah. been amazing, it was except eight out of 10 are porn sites. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, like bars are wonderful, but we still kill 40,000 people on highways every year. I mean, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. What's um, the, if you put your futurism hat on, is there, is there anything that comes to mind that, oh, this is the thing we need to be careful about once we have uh, cheap, plentiful uh, supply of energy? The, 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 well, the very first thing that worries me is... Uh, the concentration of the power of fusion. I mean, if it's really treated as a common good mm -hmm. and led by well-managed governments, so it's, uh, I was going to say like our water supply, but that isn't always fair if you're living in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, I'm trying to think this was a James Bond movie. Yeah. And suddenly this yeah. technology existed. Yeah, that, that would be the what, scary part. What would, how would Dr. Evil... Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Use this for his purposes. <laughs> I, I don't know, but you can certainly imagine that that people will try to find a way to make, to become the unicorn to make a trillion dollars off of it to be the next. You know, in all seriousness, is there anything like that that worries? I, no, no. I, I do worry, and this is more philosophical. Yeah. Um, uh, it's parallel to the idea. What happens when? All my longevity people can actually get us living to 120. Um, how do we use that time, and how do we rethink meaning in our lives? And and social relations will change. Um, just I think in many many positive ways, but there's always going to be a downside. 
what's the the great it was Aristotle right out of the out of the crooked timber of humanity no straight thing was ever wrought <laughs> we're still going to be the crooked timber of humanity even with ubiquitous energy you seem very different than a lot of politicians I've interviewed. <laughs> That's that we're all the same. <laughs> no, um, in, in all seriousness, uh, the, uh, not that many quote uh, you know uh, philosophers. <laughs> uh, well, the uh, you've seen the, the throwaway line. You know the the politician thinks about the next election. The statesman thinks about the next generation. Um, I've always thought that the wanted to be the kind of leader, uh, the kind of person that was trying to think. As long term as possible, you know. Think really. Um, what what are the what are all the ramifications of all this? Which basically is one of the reasons why I'm an optimist. Because you look at life fifty years ago, twenty years ago, hundred years ago, hundred years ago, the average lifespan of American white male was forty, and a black male was thirty. And look at where we are now, one hundred and twenty-two years later. Or my favorite example is Barbara Tuckman spoke at my college graduation. So I had to read A Distant Mirror, The History of the Calamity of the 14th Century. And her opening preface talks about it's the exact same geography, weather, resources in the 14th century as we have today. And they lived at 19. It killed half of the world in the plague, end of the uh, feudalism in the church's stranglehold and the you know, 100-year war, schism in the church. Um, and the only difference is information. I mean, enormous um, and so, all right now, so, I, I'm, our access to the enormous amount of information—that's yeah, the yeah, yeah. Which is, by the way, when fusion happens, I'm going to dive in full time on machine learning, um, because if we think about that's your have, next project. Yeah, I'm sort of going to, uh, yeah, on this AI side, and, yeah. and machine learning. Yeah, 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 uh, and 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 not to replace everything, but more of the idea that there are patterns everywhere. And we just can't see them. Um, but to the extent that we can see them, we can make very different um, outcomes. For example, my closest friend um, diagnosed with pancreatic cancer on February, uh, July 7th and died the first week of September. But it had been around for five or seven years, as doctor said. But we were not unable to see the patterns in his health that allowed for an early diagnosis and a cure. Um, the 47,000 people that died by suicide last year. Um, I know that there are patterns. The information that we generate every year that we don't know how to use. You get into some really sticky issues when you start going down that road, right? So, oh, yeah. For instance, I'm sure search engines can probably predict behaviors based on certain searches that you're doing, right? That kind of pattern recognition probably exists already, right? With with yeah, some of the big the big well, the, tech companies. Pretty much, but, we use it I mean, for that's buying kind of, patterns, right? Are, right. <laughs> but what you're talking yeah. about, right? It's, it, that's kind of the world you're 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 talking about. I mean, the math keeps developing to be able to see those patterns, yeah, in, in a bigger way. But it can be that's the that stuff can be has some scary implications for privacy yeah, and all yeah. the rest. No, yeah. Although you, you we couldn't. Uninvent special relativity, or <laughs> you know, it, yeah, we're human beings. We're going to be following all this as far down the road as we can. How important is it that this breakthrough happened here in the United States, and that the United States did this versus some other country? I think it's really important, and I don't say that in a 
in a jingoistic way or even out of patriotism, but rather because we have the commitment to basic research that no other country has. And we have the budget that no other country has. Um, you know, we, um, there's a reason why, you know, the Nobel Prize people, even if they weren't born here, they all come here. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think no one else can, can leverage this breakthrough into the commitment to accelerate the research, the development of fused energy like we can. So, so um, back up. Um, a lot of members of Congress, or most members of Congress, are not necessarily known for being um, tech savvy and savvy when it comes to science. <laughs> You've been working on this, writing about it for a, a long, long time now. Um, explain how you sort of got involved um, in what, you know, in a lot of ways for a lot of uh, uh, politicians is a somewhat obscure, though very important issue. How did you How did you get interested in this originally? Well, hi historically, I have been a math science nerd, um, so that's the the bigger background. Uh, I you know I don't have the professional education in it. Yeah, you know, science. And I had a lot of physics courses undergraduate, but but no formal minor. Where'd you go to undergrad? Uh, Williams and. And one semester at Wellesley. For I, I really wanted to be a, my my high school dream was to be a theoretical physicist at the Niels Bohr Institute in Copenhagen. Um, but then I had a terrible physics teacher senior year, and it sort of killed that idea. Huh. And and then I wandered all around. But when I got here, um, they said, "What committee do you want to be on?" And of course, I said Ways and Means, and they said, "No way, <laughs> uh, you have to be here a bunch of years first. And so I volunteered for science. At one point, Donna Edwards said, "You're the." She was chairing the committee. She said, "You're the first person I've ever heard asked to be on the science committee," <laughs> and and it's been wonderful fun. I've seen so many great things there. So on science, I've tried to be as engaged as possible. But then, maybe three years ago, um, a former member of Congress outside Boston, Chet Atkins, not the guitarist, um, <laughs> said, "Hey, I want you to meet this." retired physiology professor named Ryan Bucus. So um, we had, a, it was a Zoom, I think. And and Ryan, who's 82 years old, just was so excited about uh, the fusion. And I said what almost everybody has said to me the last three years, which is, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been 25 years away every year. I mean, you know, The Economist banned saying that phrase. Because they'd done so many pieces on yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but... And so there was just enormous skepticism. So I was the skeptic, and they said, no, no. Um, here's Dennis White, who is the professor at MIT, who is the, the plasma physicist. And he talked about the breakthroughs in so many other fields, not plasma physics, that were allowing them to leap forward. And a variety of companies were growing up all around the country with different ideas about how to get there, and that we should really take it seriously. And so this is pretty recent for you. Yeah, two years. Yeah. yeah. And then, I mean, as a science fiction nerd, of course, wouldn't it be wonderful to have fusion? But yeah. you know, when you talk to the scientists, they'd always say 2050, 2045, or you know, sometime a long way away. Yeah. Or talking to the Secretary of Energy, when I first mentioned it to her, I don't think she wasn't even confirmed yet. She said, that's really interesting. Our grandchildren will love it. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was a fascinating conversation. I hope yeah, we do thank, it again thank soon. Thank you for paying attention to this. It was really exciting. And that's our show. Our producers are Kara Tabor and Afra Abdullah. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. 
And we want to welcome Alex Keeney, our new Deep Dive senior producer. Brooke Hayes is the senior editor of audio at Politico. Jenny Ament is Politico's executive producer of audio. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Thanks for listening. 